As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that podcast growling, mean and angry, hear that local shouting, it's Dainer and Jay, it's Dainer and all right, welcome into the latest edition of Cure That Podcast Ground, presented by Visa Network, working for everyone. Paul Diener Jr. and Jay Morrison here with you from the Athletic, as always. But it is a special. We're still Jay and I. We're still we're still in off season mode a little bit. We're gonna oh, hang yeah. on. We're gonna hang on to random <laughs> off season mode uh, with uh, the the two on two series in the books. Hope you all enjoyed that. We we wanted to. You know our yearly tradition here of doing a, a rewatch in our what we call we called it game changers at one point. No one cares about that, but that's what we called it. So I'm going to call it game changers, uh, where we just go back and look at some old games. We what we've done. Uh, let's see, we did we did Oilers, Oilers, Bengals twice. Yeah, we, Corey Dillon, yeah. Mm-hmm. technically Titans, right? Corey Dillon rookie game, yeah. and we did the last Bengals playoff win. Um, and talked talk a lot about Corey. That was fun. The, the Boomer Esiason creepy white van in the end zone game, <laughs> uh, which we got to the bottom of. Shout out Seg Dennison, who was in that van, uh, apparently. Uh, and so all, you want to go back and listen to those from previous years. Those are on there. We'll, we'll put some links up for you. But uh, today, we're a little more recent, you know, because I think now that Joe Burrow has changed the entire face of the Bengals franchise, we can a little more comfortably look back to something that's more recent past without it maybe feeling so stinging a little bit for Bengals fans, although this one wasn't stinging at all. So uh, we're going to go back and listen to watch we did, Bengals-Broncos, Monday Night Football 2014, which was a 37-28 Bengals win, uh, and... It was a really interesting, fun game, a really interesting time, a run of five straight playoff bursts, Andy Dalton, Marvin Lewis, so many interesting things about this time, and it's our first chance to really unpack it. So, as always, uh, Mo Egger, back to join us for this. Mo, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, as always. I wish we did this more often. I'm also glad that we're not keeping with the Oilers theme by watching either of the two Bengals-Texans 
playoff games. No, I mean there may come a time where we have no, to go down that not, road. No, I'm not watching TJ Yates light us up again. So you don't want to watch the AJ Green as a decoy game. Hard pass on that one. <laughs> uh, and so Jay, now we all Jay and I were covering this game. Uh, I was with the Inquirer. Jay, you were DDN, right at that point. Yes. Game yep. Daily News. Uh, Mo, I'm sure you were. I assume in attendance, correct? I was, yeah, I was in attendance, in and it's, it's, in, in, well, it's interesting, and we'll talk about this. There's things that like you tend to forget. I remember it being really warm. In fact, they mm-hmm. say in the broadcast, game time temp was 49 degrees. It was much warmer than that. Um, I did not remember remember the rain at the end, and it was on the TV broadcast. Uh, watching back, it was raining really, really hard. But yeah, this game is memorable for me professionally because. Our show before Monday Night Games becomes the pregame show, and our special guest was Hulk Hogan. How about that? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I got That's Hulk Hogan cool. to talk trash about Peyton Manning, and that was cool. <laughs> uh, on the same level, our special guest is Hulk Hogan. We're going to live up to Hulk Hogan here. Dan Horde, who was on the call as always that night. Dan, what's up? I am so honored to be part of this particular <laughs> podcast because this is the, my favorite thing that you guys do. Every wow. year that you do this, I listen to it. I love it. I more or less beg my way on uh, this time <laughs> around. So I'm very excited to do this. It was a fun game to rewatch. I typically watch the games after uh, calling the game just to, you know, see what I might have missed. But I don't necessarily watch it from beginning to end. I'll watch the shortened version on NFL.com. Uh, so it was fun to go back and watch the whole thing. I also listened back to part of it. Jay asked me for a few highlights. So uh, I listened back to a little bit of the radio, and uh, this is going to be great. You know, he, here's what I took from that, Dan. Uh, says the Athletics regular season podcast coverage is terrible, is what I took from that. <laughs> Best thing you guys do is this offseason junk. We need to stay away from you. That's, that's all I hear is the uh, – uh, the guy who he loves to hate his own coverage. Uh, we're, we're, and Jay has promised to read back my lead, which I don't want to hear from from this game. So I I don't know if I'm interested. We're going to force Dan to listen to his calls again that, that you did give to us, and we appreciate <laughs> you sharing those with us. Um, I want to start with this. Now, just uh, I want to open it up to see where we go. Let's just start with sort of what stood out to you the most as you watched this game through the uh, lens of this era. Not just this night. This night was, I think, was a, a very interesting turning point in this era. But what stood out to you most from this night, Dan? I'll, I'll run back to you. The primetime angst yeah. that mm-hmm. all Bengals fans mm-hmm. felt at that time. Just that feeling that you've got no chance. It's a primetime game. Andy has struggled in all of these games. I think four minutes into the game is the first time they mention it on the telecast. It comes up repeatedly. Tariko, Gruden, the graphics team, they all mention that uh, Andy to that point was two and nine, including playoff games. So primetime and playoff games, I think the number was two and nine. But in any case, just remember how we all felt at that time. It was just like, ugh. Uh, that year they played four primetime games in the regular season. They lost three out of the four. This was the one that they won. And Jay asked me to go back and find some of the radio calls. So I listened to the beginning of our radio broadcast that night. And I said, (laughs) this is so lame in retrospect, but uh, I guess I thought it was cute at the time. I said, all right, Cincinnati, close your eyes and imagine right now that you are on Wake Island, a tiny island in the South Pacific where the current time is approaching 1 p.m., 
So Wake, <laughs> Wake Island is 16 hours ahead of Cincinnati. So obviously I was trying to say, you know, this is all in our minds. It's no big deal. Somewhere it's one o'clock right now and the Bengals will play great. And uh, while they didn't play great, they did enough to, to finally win a primetime game. Yeah, if you remember that you mentioned the, the four primetime games, this was Andy's first primetime appearance since the 2.0 game against Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So I think everybody was ready to kind of jump on him. And, and they kind of did after that pick six early. You you heard the boos right off the bat. And um, it did. It, it really kind of swung the way they just came right back from that, took a 20 to seven halftime lead. And it, even though they, they gave up the lead in the second half, it, 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 it what Andy didn't play great in this game, but it did feel kind of like a sea change where they they overcame that. And I I actually looked this up uh, to that, including that game and games prior. The Bengals were eight and two in games in which Andy Dalton threw a first quarter interception. So this was not <laughs> unusual that they overcame that an early mistake. But to do it in prime time was rare. One of those two losses was that 2.0 game against the Browns. One thing I'll say about this is the first thing I wrote, peak primetime playoffs narrative right here. Peak. Mm -hmm. This is it. I mean, this is you're coming off of the 2013 San Diego Chargers playoff game debacle. You're you're, you're still riding the 2012, the miss past A.J. Green in the playoffs. It's been bad. 2.0. This I mean, this here, this moment was peak. Bengals can't win, won't win. Andy can't win. Marvin has them playing tight. Always. Always going to choke, and it, and it's and when you go back, and a question I want to ask later is is some of the what were the biggest wins pre Burrow in Paul Brown Stadium history? This one's always up there for me because there just aren't a lot of them that were had this kind of impact. A lot of them were on the road, and a lot of these big center of attention moments always ended the same way with some sort of disaster. And this thing starts with the disaster. It starts <laughs> with the hospital ball to AJ Green getting him. It's everything that you have seen happen over and over again for them to still find a way to win it was a miracle. But that you mentioned the graphic. I mean, they got the graphic ready. They're mentioning <laughs> it over and over again. It's who the Bengals were defined by at this moment. And so for them to surprise everyone, I think in a lot of ways and beat Peyton Manning, to me, it's the big thing that I that I start with in this, and and you remember how tough that was, and, and I really how much that still does and will, unfortunately, define this era of really good Bengals teams. Yeah. Is the feeling that everyone had going into these big games is that it's not going to be like all the rest of them, and the fact that this one was. Uh, a better feeling and one that brought out that impromptu who day chance at the end, I think did make it to me a memorable special game in kind of a forgettable season. And this was their third primetime game that year. Yep. So we've mentioned the Cleveland Thursday night game, Andy's drop a deuce 2.0 game. <laughs> <laughs> the first primetime game that year was Sunday night football the Bengals' fourth game of the season. They're 3-0. and Andy has not been sacked in the first three games of the year. That was the we're on to Cincinnati Patriots game. That's mm-hmm. the game where Bill Belichick said it going into the game because they had been destroyed by Kansas City in their previous game. And the Bengals went to New England and completely got rolled. One of the interesting things to me overall about the season, and I know we'll talk about this later, but when the Bengals lost that year, they lost. (laughs) (laughs) Every game was by double digits. They lost six, including the playoff games to the Colts, playoff game to the Colts. 
Four of the six were by at least three touchdowns beginning with that Patriots game. And two of those games were the previous primetime games Mm -hmm. against the Patriots and Browns. So the national narrative was up. Here come the Bengals getting primetime exposure and it's not going to go well. And that night it did. Yeah, they lost a game in Indianapolis in the regular season. That's the first time I've I've left a game in the third quarter is maybe the most (laughs) non-competitive regular season game. And and I've lived through a few. Uh, that the Bengals have played. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it's it's the primetime angst. It, it's also sort of, you know, we were in the middle of this time where we were wondering, God, can can Andy Dalton take his play to the next level? And so he trots out to start the game, and they show the graphic of, like, I think it's the Bengals' record when he starts. And Tarico's like, laying it on. He's like, well, you know, say what you want about Andy, but he wins, blah, blah, blah. And John Gruden goes, yeah, they're a run-first team. The disdain that John Gruden has for Andy Dalton is very evident as you watch this broadcast. And if you watch how he played during the game, understandably so. But I think of this era for for through um, the lens of for like three years, every home win was crazy, right? The, the monsoon in which they stopped Brady's streak of throwing touchdown passes, uh, the game against the Packers in which they turned the ball over four straight times and still figure out a way to win. That was 2013, 2015, the Seattle comeback. It felt for me like there was this three-year stretch when either they just beat the hell out of opponents or won games in these insane ways. And this would quantify the third quarter of this game is immensely entertaining. And you alternate between the excitement of watching the team go toe-to-toe with Peyton Manning and that sound that Paul Brown Stadium would make during those primetime games when you sense that something really bad is about to happen. And so I, I kind of really forgot how nuts this game gets once the third quarter gets here. But that, to me, was emblematic of just that stretch 13, 14, and 15 when they were usually so good at home. and But the games, they never just beat anybody 24-7. to there was very rarely a ho-hum Paul Brown Stadium win during that era, and this, to me, typifies that. All right, let's take a second and switch gears here and hear from a sponsor. We've mentioned Andy a few times. He's bad. He's bad this oh. game. Like, I mean, and it's, it's, it's right down the line. He gets saved. This would have been another Andy primetime choke game if it weren't for special teams and defense saving the day and Peyton Manning throwing it four times. I mean, I think he was rattled by the ball that got A.J. injured, that he sailed. And then, you know, I will say this. Credit Hugh Jackson. He reins the game plan in, and he's like, nope, just not going to throw it. I'm just not. We're going to do a million screens. I'm suddenly turning. uh, uh, Andy's going to be a zone read. Like they reference it a bunch of time. It's like, are we watching TCU? Andy Dalton, he's running it. It's just Gresham galore. He threw maybe what three balls down the field and they were all disasters. Uh, I mean, the, the defense, Peyton Manning's interceptions, the special teams returns, all that stuff saves this from being yet another mark against Andy Dalton because he's terrible in this game. I'm I'm glad you said that because I don't want to be the first, but I'll I'll show you my notes here in the upper yeah. right hand corner. I wrote, you still have your notes from the game? No, I have it from watching it last night. I wrote, <laughs> I don't miss Andy Dalton. Uh, yeah. Starting, starting, and it makes me appreciate Joe Burrow. I, starting with yeah. the, the the throw that bounces off AJ Green, where 
yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's really unfair to compare Andy to the guy they have now. But I think the thing that I like most about Joe is I don't see that. I don't see receivers getting mm-hmm. killed because the ball's behind them or they got to contort themselves in weird. You know, we were always talking about Auden Tate's catch radius because you had to have a big catch radius with Andy. And we all understand the attributes that Andy brought to the table. And he won a lot of games. He's a great guy. But I mean, this this game is exhibit A. Uh, as to why y- you are thrilled that you have the quarterback that you have right now. And yeah, I mean, there's there's another thing here we'll talk later on about play calling uh, in one of your categories, Paul, but this to me was the biggest takeaway, that I really don't miss having to talk myself into Andy as he is wielding the ball behind his wide receivers and overthrowing guys, and by the way, doing so behind a pretty competent offensive line. Andy was only sacked, I think, 20 or 21 times that year, and in this game, He's not under duress a lot, um, but he's bad. And they win this game in spite of him. And that, to me, was the thing that stood out most re-watching it eight years later. You mentioned the O-line. I, I do wonder about how much of that was Hugh reigning in the game plan and how much was a, a part of it originally. Because they mentioned on the broad, if you remember, um, Andre Smith got hurt in the Houston game. They call Eric Winston, or they bring him off the street he'd only been with the team 10 games so you got a right tackle against von miller and, and that pass rush and so i wonder if the the screens and all that was part of it even before andy's bad throw but then the the bad throw that got aj hurt he did it again at the end of the first half mm-hmm. he, he there was one across the middle and he sailed it high and it seemed like he did that to aj a lot i don't know if it was he trusted him to go up and get those balls or if it was just an inaccurate problem but it, it was it, it, the, the boos were louder, I thought, on that one because the first one, the, the pick six, people were kind of just – it was more groans that here we go. And then there, it's a third and nine. They're in position in field goal range already. And he he, throw, he sails it high for AJ and they have to settle for a field goal right before halftime. Which, by the way, the that was one of the rare times that, that they took the ball over with four and a half minutes to go and they go down and they get points before the half and then – Peyton Manning has a minute left and he gets them in field goal range and they miss the field goal. So that kind of flipped the narrative of, of the Marvin Lewis pre halftime meltdowns. Um, the one other thing you mentioned, Joe Burrow end of the game, they're down 28, 27 third and goal. I think it was the six or the seven yard line. Hugh calls a shovel pass. For oh, I wrote Gio. that down too. No, yeah. I, I wrote that down and I said, yeah. "Hey, one for Mo." It was <laughs> yeah. It, 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 they, does Joe Burrow get asked to throw a shovel pass there? No, no way. I think no. that I think that was more. A pro- I wasn't the look they were getting. I think it was more product of we don't trust Andy Dalton. We're going to do it. We've got. The, we're in easy field goal range to take the lead. We're going to do something simple here. I'm going to I'm going to defend Andy a little bit here. He was terrible in that game. It's mm-hmm. undeniable. His high pass gets AJ hurt on the opening series. That's undeniable. But did you look at the targets after AJ essentially was out of the game? I mean, he kept Oof. playing, but he was playing with one arm. Mar- Mosinu becomes the top wide receiver. Then you've got Brandon Tate and Dane Sonsenbacher for the rest of the game. You going to throw downfield to those guys? Right. No. Tyler Eifert got hurt in week one, missed the rest of the year. Marvin Jones got hurt in the preseason, missed the entire year. He had nobody to throw to. Now, again, I'm not (laughs) saying he was good in that game, but you were not going to be able to throw downfield to those targets for the rest Mm -hmm. of that game. It became impossible once A.J. was playing one-armed. It, it kind of became a preview of what the playoff game would be. Mm -hmm. And and they didn't have Gresham in the playoff game. We found out that morning. So yeah, I, I, at all. 
Right, yeah. yeah. So I, I was, thought of that often. It was Rex often. Burkhead and Kobe Hamilton. I want to make sure those guys get their proper shout out. <laughs> yes. Slot receiver Rex Burkhead and outside receiver Kobe Hamilton played 37 snaps in that game. And it didn't feel that way at the time, but I think if you're looking at each of those playoff losses, those five straight in a vacuum, that is the one that you kind of shrug your shoulders about the most for that reason. And I, I thought of that often watching Andy try to throw to some of those guys. Um, I, I do think, though, we've we've got to spend some time talking about Jeremy Hill. Yes, uh, because to me, this is, you know, uh, Jeremy fumbles in this game. And so it's easy to look ahead and say, well, that foreshadowed what would happen about a year later. But boy, the second half of his rookie year, man, there weren't many dudes better than that guy. And, you know, the 85 yard run obviously accounts for the most of his yardage that night. But he had four games in which he ran for over 140 yards. It was a very run first offense. And you could say that's because of the limitations of the quarterback and the guys he didn't have to throw to at times. But as much as Jeremy is remembered for something that none of us you know, really want to go back and recall, the second half of his rookie year was awesome. And I remember the excitement around that for what he might become, for what the running game might be his second year. Gruden talks effusively about how much better uh, he thinks Jeremy Hill is than Giovanni Bernard. Um, but but to me, this is this is like peak excitement over this running back who is giving them a dimension that we had been longing for forever and that we thought that they would have for a very long time. A, a, a Jeremy Hill play from that game that that kind of I took note of that maybe was overlooked. Marv actually went for it on fourth and one. He didn't go for fourth down a lot. He goes for it on fourth and one. Jeremy Hill gets stoned in the backfield and still fights forward, gets the first down, and they convert the rest of that drive into a field goal to take the lead. Um, you're right. It was <laughs> he he had some he had that 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 terrible fumble and the foreshadowing moment. But yes, that was there. He had he may have been the most important because if you remember that the 85 yard touchdown was the very first play after Dalton's pick six, that really kind of let everybody exhale a little bit and be like, okay, maybe this isn't the primetime jinx. We thought it was going to be. Jeremy was awesome in the second half of that season, but it was a great one, two punch as well with mm-hmm. Giovanni because yes. Giovanni was still at the, the peak of his skills. He had more than a thousand combined rushing and receiving yards that year. Jeremy Hill had more than 1300 combined rushing and receiving yards that year. So what a great uh, duo to be able to mix and match for Hugh Jackson that season, being able to go to either of those guys and getting great uh, productivity. Well, really, I mean, this, I I think one of the memorable moments for everyone though was the run. I mean, it was, it was 85 yards right after, I mean, everyone is assuming, oh, this is going to be a disastrous moment. The hospital ball, AJ Green's hurt. This is a disaster. And then, Everything changes when this happens. Dan Horde's call. I'm sure it's perfect. They'll start from their own 15-yard line. Dalton in the shotgun. Delayed handoff. Jeremy Hill trying to bounce it out to the right. Breaks an ankle tackle. Look at him go to the 30. 35-40. To the logo at the 50. Cuts back. Pushes over. Mosinu to the 25. 20. 10. 5. Touchdown. (laughs) Bengals. How about that? 85 yards for Jeremy Hill. How about that? Even gets a good woo from from Black right as he crosses the end. How about that? Uh, that that was that's a, that's a, that's a fit. But you could sense the moment of like, okay, maybe this can be different. And and, it, and I think it, it's a one play microcosm of the second half of that season. Well, yeah, everything could be the same as it was, but this is different. 
You know, this is different, and I think Hugh, you know, was always good at, at at dedicating himself to and coaching up and getting productive run games, and and they had that going, and they were willing to ride that because, in a lot of ways, during the, that time in that season, they they really had to. But I thought they did a good job, you know, of of offsetting what their limitations were, whether due to injury, due to quarterback, due to situation, whatever it was. Um, it, we also didn't mention that this is prime Von Miller and Demarcus Ware, by the way, mm. on the other side. So, you know, I, I, I get it all. Can I, I have one Jeremy Hill thing that I want to make sure I pull out here. Uh, I'm not a big memorabilia guy, but he, as a rookie at this time, he is Odell Beckham and uh, Jarvis Lander, they even mentioned in the broadcast, uh, and him all came out of LSU together. They're all having really big rookie years. They were trying to like kind of start their brand and their, their image, uh, something that took off certainly for Jarvis and Odell, not as much for Jeremy Hill. However, they had a deal with spray ground if you know these backpacks that are usually fairly outlandish. I think they, the company I think is still doing okay today. Um, they sent me one. They sent me Jeremy Hills, and I'd like to show it to you. It is ridiculous. Okay, oh <laughs> it, it. This is Jeremy. He's like holding a giant tiger. I'd like to point out there is a. Um, let's see here. There's a very scandalous woman uh, <laughs> with some kind of football helmet and giant chain. But this is really what it's about: cash storks. Okay. <laughs> These are storks as or pelicans. I'm not exactly sure that drop cash onto Jeremy Hill thanks to Stay Turnt and the uh, the royal family that they were trying to brand themselves at. I've kept it all these years because I find it hilarious. And finally, <laughs> finally, a moment for me to pull it out to my advantage. Your which daughter, daughters, which of your daughters brings that? <laughs> yeah, that, well, we're saving it. She starts we're, kindergarten you're this starting year, kindergarten. so yes. yeah, it's gonna be. It's a good kindergarten upgrade that we're gonna that we're gonna drop in there. She's appreciative of, of cash the, storks. The, the, the turn, the turn thing is something we had a lot of fun with. Regrettably, after the Steelers playoff game, because it was turned mm-hmm. over, and we just <laughs> beat that into the ground and. I feel well, bad. he had he had the stay turnt across his uh, yeah. eye black, right? Which yeah. is what I was. Oh yeah, that's right. Stay stay turnt, a big thing. I, I I do want to. It's really hard not to catch big meltdown at Paul Brown vibes foreshadowing off of it. It's just hard not to when you know what happens. And there's the rain and the night, and Jeremy Hill's fumbling in a huge moment. And then you have the penalty where you get the interception. And, you know, and Gruden and Tarico, like, call it what it is. And, and it's like they could have been calling the game the next year. Gruden, quote, Cincinnati can't have penalties like that in moments like this. You're going to get into some big games. You have to act like you've been there before. Big play by Jones, but terrible penalty. Tarico, quote, a without poise moment for the Bengals. And if that doesn't take you directly back to that night as the ultimate foreshadowing of a possible issue that this team might have, does have, has had in huge moments, I just don't know what does. It's 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 too overwhelming to not talk about it. The only thing missing was Vontez Perfect. He was yeah. out that year with a knee injury. But, and I did find it interesting that the back and forth were – because as they go to commercial, they show Adam Jones waving to the the <laughs> Denver bench, but they announce the penalty on Reggie Nelson. And um, at one point, they show a replay again, 
And you see the official's flag in the air before Adam ever starts waving. And then they, they had, they, they checked with the NFL spotter and they said, no, it, that was the right call. And so you would expect that penalty to be on Adam Jones. I don't remember Reggie Nelson ever having any coming close to having any sort of taunting penalty. It might've been the only one of his career. I don't even think taunting was called that much back then. It, it became an emphasis the last couple of years, but yeah, there was just, there was so much about that. Even like you said, the, the rain, the prime time, just the, the, the comeback and then almost blowing it. It just, there was, you, you couldn't help. The other thing, it was opposite end of the field, but Jeremy Hill's fumble was at the nine yard line in both games. Oh, Jay's got stats. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, poor, poor Jeremy Hill. I, yeah, it, poor to me, the, there, there's a moment in this game that I really liked because I always felt like he was such an unfair pincushion for Bengals fans. Brandon Tate has mm. one of the biggest plays of this game, a punt return. And it's even referenced, uh, Gruden talks about how, well, with Tate, they normally want a fair catch. And so you often see Adam Jones. And Adam Jones is, is having a great game. But Brandon Tate was always, I just felt like such an unfair whipping boy for fans who never really understood his his value because he wasn't explosive like Adam was returning punts. You know, he never really made a huge impact. You didn't want to see him on the field a lot as a wide receiver. And so I, I remember often coming to his defense like, look, man, when he catches a punt, your offense is going to trot out onto the field immediately afterward. And there's great value in that. And Marvin Lewis would often talk about that. But he has a huge play in this game that, you know, was was really not something you would often see, but there were a couple of moments during his time, I think one against Detroit in a game they won maybe at the gun or in, in overtime or something where uh, he has a huge punt return, but this is a 50-yard kick return that basically changes the game. It certainly flips the field, puts him in a position to score, and nobody ever wanted to talk about that. Nobody ever wanted to talk about his value to the team, and again, it's ordinarily a lot less flashy than a you know 49 or 50-yard punt return, but that is maybe the most critical moment of this game. Who knows what happens if it's a fair catch? Who knows if they score there? Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that should be should be referenced. Why was Jeremy Hill never this good again? Yeah. What's our theory on that? I remember at the time people saying, beginning in 2015, he was dancing too much behind the line of scrimmage, not enough north and south. But do we have a definitive theory for why Jeremy Hill was never as good as he was in the second half of his rookie year? I mean, as much as he tries to, you know, clap back at fans on Twitter, I I think that fumble against the Steelers really got in his head and but really even affected in him. Fifteen before the yeah. fumble, he did not have a 100 yard game. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the team was tremendous. The offensive line was phenomenal. He had become the number one back. He was no longer really sharing time with Giovanni. Giovanni became more of a strictly a third down guy in 2015, and yet he was okay. He was good. He was part of a great team but he did not have a single 100-yard game in 2015. Remember when Marv would start Jeremy Hill for a series and let Joe Mixon wait to come in in 2017? Oh. <laughs> Orange slices. And, I mean, and that was, I mean, it was it was like, it was just in denial, They thinking that they might need it. There was like this thought that they could, you could reclaim Jeremy Hill even after they drafted Mixon. I, I don't know. I I, I want to connect it to Hugh Jackson leaving, but you're, you mentioned, I mean, 15, he's he's certainly not as dominant. I don't, 
you know, I didn't know enough about Jeremy personally, if anything changed with him or, or maybe, you know, you, you see guys have big rookie gears and they party too much. I have no idea if that's the case. Um, maybe that's something that happened here. Uh, maybe he lost focus. I, I, it's hard to know, maybe an injury. I, I do think after 15, you know, I think Hugh, Hugh really helped drive Jeremy um, and they never really found it again. It's a great question. It, because that year you thought, okay, you've got your running back for the next five years. He's going to be outstanding. And he was really never never that great again. It's true. Yeah. I, I remember the Mixon, Jeremy, Giovanni Bernard thing because we would make fun of Marvin giving orange slices to Jeremy after he played the first series, like, you know, a <laughs> Pop Warner coach because he was, you know, deploying uh, playing time that way. I remember 15 with Jeremy because they, they started 8 0. They get off to a great start. And it's. God, imagine this team once they get the running game going because they never really did. And then midway through the season, it's like, all right, they're uh, they're going to get the running game going, right? And then by the end of the year, it was, uh, holy crap, the starting quarterbacks hurt. Um, this team doesn't run the ball that effectively. What's going to happen now? And it was, it was. I mean, you were. I remember the offseason between fourteen and fifteen. People were taking odds on him leading the league in rushing. Like that was a mm-hmm. major, major theme. People were wagering on that. Uh and it just never really materialized. And I mean, even we don't talk about the good from Jeremy Hill because of the fumble. We don't even really talk about the fact that his production fell off a cliff to a large degree, even prior to the fumble because of the fumble. One other thing about this team this season, it's remarkable to me. Um, the Bengals had a thousand injuries that year. Marvin Jones gets injured on the first day of camp. Dan mentioned Tyler Eifert gets hurt. Uh, in the first week against Baltimore, Burfick barely plays. A.J. Green misses time. There's a new defensive coordinator. There's a new offensive coordinator, and yet they go to Pittsburgh week 17 with a chance to win the division. Marvin Lewis doesn't even show up in the NFL AP Coach of the Year voting. Doesn't even show up. Now, should he have won it? Probably not. Uh, You often don't get credit if you're coaching a team that was good the year before, but I've always felt like, this kind of represents one of his better coaching jobs just from, you know, the, the genuine lack of continuity on the coaching staff, the limitations of the quarterback, all the different injuries as tough as the division was. um, He he doesn't even, I, I I knew Arians wanted, I figured somebody would throw Marvin a vote. Doesn't even come close. Doesn't even show up. And that really doesn't reflect what I felt at the time and still feel was, uh, the job that he did with this team, because that roster at the top at the beginning of the season was excellent. It was ravaged and and starting on day one of camp and they still won 10 games and came this close to winning the division. That is a great coaching job. And the the voting for coach of the year doesn't even come close to reflecting that. Well, you throw in those four losses by 21 or more points. And, and I, I think that probably played a role in it as well. And at that point it was kind of that, they had they had been a lot of times those those coach of the years go to the the big reclamation project and the, the mm-hmm. surprise and they had they had been to the playoffs three straight years so I, I agree with you I thought it was a really good job by Marvin that year but from a national perspective it kind of looked like same old Bengals this is what we've seen the last three years no one was Every ever going to give credit to to Marvin until he won a playoff game he was never going to yeah. win another thing until yeah. he won a playoff game because it was the defining trait still is of his time here at that point. I, I felt exactly what Mo is talking about while watching this game because it, it reminded me that they had 
both coordinators were in their first year. That was first year for Hugh as offensive coordinator, first year for Paul as defensive coordinator. Uh, Gruden and Zimmer had gotten head coaching jobs that offseason. The Vance Joseph impact that year was huge. I don't think there's ever been an assistant coach who is not a coordinator, at least in the time that I've been doing the games, that got more buzz in the building than Vance Joseph did that year. I just remember in training camp, people like, man, this Vance Joseph guy is amazing. And of course, a few years later, he's an NFL head coach. Uh, I I thought the coaching staff as a whole that night and that season did a phenomenal job. All right, let's just take a quick break. And I was going back through that staff um, and I mean, James Urban was an incredible uh, uh, assistant, and he's done had been at the forefront of Lamar Jackson picking up the NFL. Um, Vance Joseph, you mentioned I me. Mean, Vance Joseph shows up on this night. I mean, the way that the DBs are anticipating everything and trying to play the head games with Peyton freaking Manning uh, is incredible. I mean, Reggie Nelson just running to the quick bubble screen on the other side or anticipating throws, understanding that Peyton, and I know we're going to talk about this, maybe to can't throw it over the top of you as much. And and the, the full understanding that they had in anticipating everything Peyton Manning was trying to do jumps off the screen which had me when i started thinking about and i'll I'll go early on this topic i want to talk about who's the mvp of this game because have we even mentioned drake or patrick's name yet i don't know (laughs) he comes into this game and has two picks and just steps right in for terrence newman but paul gunther i mean this was his first year and Lord knows, John Gruden had no problem laying some compliments on him during this game, but he was earning them. I mean, the way that they were just staying one step ahead of Peyton Manning and everything, knowing that that was going to be what the game was going to be all about, was going to be trying to keep in front of him. And this is, he made a name for himself on this night. He did a little bit during this season, and he certainly did in 15, but this was a game where it's like, oh, who's the coordinator on this team? Because this is a pretty special performance in guys understanding what they're doing out there. I think this is a top-of-the-mountain type game for Paul Gunther. Um, I, you know, I'd have to maybe go back and think closer to some other games during his career, but I think you'd have a hard time finding one in Cincinnati as a coordinator where he shined any more than this one. It, maybe th- that's the one piece that that should have been foreshadowing because in that that he he came after Peyton Manning and yes they they showed a lot of blitzes and then dropped out of them one the Adam Jones interception he acts like he's going to blitz off the edge drops back in coverage gets the pick a couple times they fake the double a get gap blitz but they did come after Peyton Manning a lot in that game because as you mentioned maybe they knew that he wasn't the old Peyton Manning of old couldn't go over the top he did have a couple nice passes but you remember that the meltdown against Paul Brown when when Ben comes back in after the injury and he didn't go after him and everybody knew he couldn't throw it. And he sat back and just let Ben throw underneath, underneath, they work, work their way down the field, get the two penalties and win the game. But you're right. I thought this was a a great, great game for Gunther because it, it was, I, I didn't remember enough of the Denver games leading up to this, but you know, watching it, I'm like, has Peyton Manning ever been under center this much before? I, I don't know if that was unexpected. What what the the offensive scheme of the Broncos and they were using six offensive linemen, really trying to establish the run. And when they did pass, Gunther just had Peyton Manning. I mean, 
four interceptions, the second highest total of his career. Uh, none, none in the first half. No, no touchdowns. They're only. Their only points were, was the pick six. They really had him rattled. And then that he goes touchdown, touchdown, touchdown to start the, the old Peyton Manning shows up in the third quarter. But you're right. That, that did stand out both, both Gunther and Vance Joseph, because they, there was a couple times on the sideline where they showed the defense rallying after a, a, a series and, and Vance Joseph was right in there, um, coaching them up as hard as you, you actually saw him more than you saw Gunther talking to the team on the bench. I rode Paul Gunther down as my MVP for this game. I thought. The Bengals' defensive strategy was brilliant. They clearly had Peyton Manning confused all night. This was the year after Peyton threw 55 touchdown passes. So even though he did not play well and did not look good that night, he was still pretty much at the top of his game. And the other thing that uh, struck home for me is a few years later, John Gruden becomes the head coach of the Raiders and hires Paul Gunther <laughs> as defensive coordinator. How much money did Paul Gunther make that night yeah. <laughs> performance against Denver? Now, Paul Gunther and Jay Gruden were very close friends when they were on the same coaching staff. So I'm sure John Gruden got a strong recommendation from his brother. But still, I do think that the Bengals' performance that night was at least a factor in John Gruden hiring Paul Gunther to be his defensive coordinator a few years later. Had to have been. I mean, I I put Dre as the MVP for all the obvious reasons. And to me, you know, 20 years from now, when you mention the Bengals fans, the name Dre Kirkpatrick, this is the first game that's going to come up mm. or, or maybe the time he had like uh, six pass interference calls against the Patriots. I don't know, but th this is going to be the game that came up. The other thing, and this is not necessarily directly Bengals related, but he passed away late last year. This game reminds you of how good Demarius Thomas was yeah. big physical, just rooting for the other team how scary that guy was. And Gruden says at some point during the broadcast, like uh, the, the Broncos should go after Drake or Patrick, the Broncos should go after Drake or Patrick matched up against Demarius Thomas. And prior to seeing what Dre would do, that would be a scary concept. If you're rooting for Drake or Patrick's team, because that guy was really, really freaking good. Uh, some fun minutia here um, about uh, Drake or Patrick coming into this game. Terrence Newman starts. He's not playing particularly well. He's getting thrown over the top of. Uh, Terrence Newman recently did a fantastic, uh, Terrence Newman, uh, one of my favorite Bengals, uh, just an awesome dude, but he did a fantastic interview with Tyler Dunn, uh, golongtd.com, who has a great website. But um, uh, And in it, this game comes up. And Terrence has an incredible quote, uh, this from uh, his quote to Tyler Dunn, Newman. I had the flu before the game. I was in the training room saying, I just don't feel good. So I asked for something for my cough. They say, here you go. We get into the game and Demarius Thomas was kicking my ass on the sideline. I throw up. I just started throwing up and coach goes, are you all right? And I said, man, I don't feel good. So they pulled me out and put Drake or Patrick in. Dre had two picks that game. So I wish I sat that game out. I go to the next day. They take my temperature and it was 105. They send me home immediately. They gave, they give me some medicine, cough drops, everything under the sun. They say, come check in tomorrow and we'll see how you're doing i go back in the next day they send me back home they sent me back home for three days then we played pittsburgh at the end of the week but man i lost a ton of weight and couldn't stop coughing that was the worst part when you get sick you get one hell of an ab workout when you're coughing religiously you'll get a six-pack no question i think i had a six-pack and by the time i felt better i had an eight-pack i had eight abs you know he's throwing up on the sidelines and that's what forces 
Drake or Patrick to end up coming into this game and having this moment that ends up changing everything. The question I'll ask you guys about Drake or Patrick was, does he deserve this praise or did Peyton just tee him up? <laughs> I mean, he just throws it right to him. You got to be in the right spot, yeah. but he throws it right to him. The first one was a gimme. The second one was a, a good, a better play by Drake Kirkpatrick. And, um, but yeah, it, it, if you, if you pick off Peyton Manning twice in a game, regardless of how it happens, one for a pick six, I, I, I lean toward giving Dre the credit. That's fair. I, I like Dre. Uh, actually, I, I know he's a div- div- divisive guy amongst people. I was lucky enough that this game sparked was when I ended up going to uh, Gadsden down to do a story with him on on and his his family and his come up because this was a big year the next year for him because he was going to now come into his own. He he was in a contract year and all this stuff and it was like this guy, which just by the way, uh, immediately flashbacks two first round pick corners doing nothing but playing gunner on special teams <laughs> as prime Marvin Lewis era. Uh, but you know, you've got these guys who they really hadn't had much of a chance or an opportunity. And so this could be the blossoming of their first round pick and their star. And I really, he was the night when I went down there and did that, he was the most welcoming, like kind hearted dude. I think I'd come across in my time covering the NFL and always kept a soft spot for me because of that. Like just let's meet everybody. Come meet my people, my friends. I'll show you everything. And like, come hang out with my family. Let's make you some dinner. You know, it's great. Come on into my house and welcomed us. Me and Sam Green, our, uh, our photographer, uh, you know, for two days. And, he, he, I think for that fact, you know, he says crazy things. He has lots of penalties and he was kind of a weird dude on the field. Uh, and I think he was a little bit misunderstood. He was really, uh, uh, for me, from my angle, a good hearted guy. And this was obviously his big moment. I'll never forget standing at some parking lot where he had, he was doing some interview with Sirius radio or something while we were in his car. And he stopped to talk. And I look out, and right in front of us on this massive billboard is the picture of Draker Patrick in the end zone with his arms out and the rain coming down, uh, promoting his camp or whatever. But it's like he was, I mean, in that little town in Alabama, like he was a star and he really embraced that and loved being back there and took a lot of pride in helping out back there. And I, you know, it was like it was his big moment. And I, you know, he, he ended up getting paid off of all of it and good for him. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was, it was quite a night for him. Peyton with uh three inter he had Dre had two interceptions. Peyton had three in the four, fourth quarter. It was only one of two games in Peyton Manning's career where he threw three fourth quarter picks. Um, I have, uh, I have some trivia. I have one, one bit of trivia. We're talking about the defense here. Um, let's see how you guys can do from 2011 to 2015. Fewest points allowed in the NFL. Uh, who do you think is in the? Where do you think the Bengals are in the top? In, near the top there, obviously, great run for defenses. Mike Zimmer, Paul Gunther, Geno, everybody. Uh, great run for the defense. Where do you think they were from that in that stretch of five years? They gave up a lot this particular year. So yeah. if the number is really low, it would have been from the other years. I'll say ninth. Ninth. Yeah, I was going to say eighth. Upper upper top ten. Actually, third. Hmm. They wow. were third. Wow. Seattle, uh, obviously, Legion of Boom, 1322 over that stretch. San Francisco, 1501. Bengals, 1571, ahead of Pittsburgh at 1598. Uh, Bill Belichick in sixth with those New England teams who were also good. I mean, it was just, you know, the players were so good. They drafted so well. 
the I mean, Gino, this was, although another Paul Gunther tribute here, if we're becoming a Paul Gunther tribute show here, <laughs> um, this Gino had a down year. He had three sacks or whatever, and he was and he he had been so great. It was like, what what's wrong with Gino? And you, he's a non-factor in this game. You wouldn't even know yeah. that mm-hmm. he was out there. The next year, he's incredible. Twenty fifteen, he's he's, was he's the, he had gotten hurt the Halloween game the year before. Yeah, uh, thirteen. Memory serves me correct. So he was coming Halloween. off a season of which, yeah, right, coming off yeah. the injury. But after the year, we are sitting in Paul Gunther's office when after they lose to Indianapolis, and he goes on a rant calling Gino Atkins just a guy. And I don't know if that motivated him, uh, but it was purposeful and it certainly worked if that was part of it. <laughs> and it got the best out of him because he was, I mean, his, his other all pro year in 15, he was incredible and a big part of that team being so good. So another another feather in the cap of Paul Gunther was was that, which I remember all of us walking out of there saying, what the hell was that? You know, but obviously it was it was purposely directed. I also think that was the beginning of the end, or maybe the end, period, of Gino talking to us. He yeah. did do interviews prior to Paul Gunther saying he was just a guy. <laughs> and whether it was that statement or all of us repeating it and criticizing his performance or you know, harshly critiquing his performance that season, he never did interviews again mm. after that. So I, I remember doing an, an hour-long radio show with him. Hard to imagine that Gino, uh, Gino Atkins ever did that, but he did. And uh, after Paul said that and more criticism ensued, Gino never talked again, at least to us. To us. <laughs> well, see, he didn't talk to you guys, but we gave away home run derby tickets on the air by playing a game that involved you getting the most famous person you can to call in. And Gino called in. And Jim Osarski got really, really mad. Got really, <laughs> Gino called in and was was terrific. I don't, if I recall, he was not the most famous person who called in. I don't really remember who was, but I remember being incredulous about the fact that Gino Atkins was on hold. Is this really him? And he came on and he was fine. And that didn't go over well with people who cover, or at least one person who covers the team. <laughs> let me, uh, yeah, there's no doubt. Gino knows. G- Jim, Jim would not let it go. Every single he week, he would be there. Right. He would ask every single week. So he tried different methods. Gino Notes was, was probably my favorite, where he would just write down like d- a question with a yes, no, maybe box like you do in grade school and ask him if he wanted to look at it or check a box and wouldn't, wouldn't do that. The other thing is, he did talk to him one time very memorably after the meltdown at Paul Brown. We are over in that corner. Carlos Dunlap and Geno Atkins are right next to each other. And Carlos is going on, you know, Bengals beat Bengals, doing his whole thing. And we, I remember turning over, and I think I'm, it probably was Jim, had asked, and Gino said yes. And he did 10 unbelievable minutes. He just needed to get it off his chest mm-hmm. about what had just happened or whatever. And I remember thinking, like, forget everything we saw tonight craziest thing we saw tonight just <laughs> happened right here Gino just turned and spouted gold for 10 minutes out of nowhere uh but yeah you might be right Dan. that that might be the moment that that changes everything it certainly it certainly seemed to be um I don't want to we don't need to get into there's a lot a lot of interesting potential hall of fame conversations that we'll have about people from this era wit Gino AJ. I mean, the idea that there's going to be three dudes who probably end up in the room at some point. They might not all get in. They may none. And they all, I don't know. Uh, but the fact you have three dudes that are going to be in the room in one generation 
all homegrown picks, a first, a second, and a fourth. A uh, little Duke Tobin flag there. Um, you know uh, what a the the great run of drafting that they had, and it's right here in the in this run with these teams and and what they uh, were able to do. But you know, Gino, he'll be a really really interesting Hall of Fame conversation come time. Can I sneak in a trivia question before we get too far away from the pick <laughs> six? Yes. All right, here we go. What former Bengals linebacker picked up, had a pick six? Off Peyton Manning and Eli Manning with this hint. Neither happened in a Bengals uniform. So a Bengals linebacker, former Bengals linebacker, picked six off both Peyton and Eli, although neither happened while he was playing for the Bengals. Carlos Dansby? Boom. Yes. Wow. Nice. Wow. <laughs> yes. I mean, Hall of Famers. Yeah. I mean, Carlos, who would tell you that everyone with 20 interceptions and what was the other stat? 20, 20 and 20, sacks. 20, 20, 20 sacks yeah. is in the Hall of Fame. He would tell you it religiously. Correct. Correct. He <laughs> vowed to become the first player. He would come out right and say it. Uh, first player to never go to a Pro Bowl to make it to the Hall of Fame. Obviously, we hope that Ken <laughs> Riley is the answer to that question. Yeah. Carlos Dansby never shied away from saying, I deserve to be in the Hall of Fame someday. And <laughs> hey, he does have that great stat with pick sixes off Peyton and Eli. He had the last pick six off of Peyton Manning. Wow. How about Can that? Can I throw in a quick trivia? Go for it. All right. So Gio was kind of the anti Andy Dalton when it came to primetime. I mean, he always stepped up. And I looked it up. Uh, AJ Green has the most primetime touchdowns in Bengals history with 11 geo second with nine when, when you talk about Monday night football only geo had five touchdowns on Monday night football which is second in Bengals history uh do you guys know and it's not AJ Green do you know who had the most in Bengals history on Monday night football most touchdowns touchdown receptions touchdowns touchdown period scored touchdowns period Chad maybe nope no I mean, they went a long he time without being on Monday role. Night Football, so it's nobody from the yeah. 90s. Yeah. Uh, or is it? Um, is it? Th- this guy played a prominent role in our very first rewatch from that Oilers play. James game. Brooks? No, he's up there, but. In the first he, that's, one? Brooks is tied with Gio with five for the second most. It's Rodney Holman with eight. Wow. 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 Go Rodney Holman drop. That's a stamper. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, any other trivia that we need to get off of our chest? Yes. All right. All right. I come prepared. Jay, Jay's going to love this one. <laughs> In the last 15 years, what is the Bengals record in their home game closest to Christmas? Oh, man. <laughs> so this game was played on December 22nd, 22nd, 2014. It's their closest game that year to Christmas. This is the game where the Bengals come out in their Santa costumes every year. So in the last 15 years, the home game closest to Christmas. Well, I know it's good because yeah. I always I had the uh, send them home happy stat, which was the their their home finale was they had a great record in their home finale, especially in years when they didn't go to the playoffs. Um, and a lot of those games may have been around Christmas because the, the the actual finale may have been on the road. So 15 years closest to Christmas, I'll go 12 and three. 
Yeah, I was going to say one game worse, 11 and four. One more thing in there. There was one year where there was a game played seven days before Christmas and seven days after. So the total number is actually 16. (laughs) 12 and four. Yeah, I'll I'll say say 10 and six. How about 15 and one? Get out of here. (laughs) Gamblers take note. What was the loss? Game this year will be the Buffalo game on January. That will be their home game closest to Christmas. Take the Bengals to win outright. (laughs) Josh Allen's going to take on the chin. I don't know if it's those Bengals costumes. I don't know what brings good luck. 15 and one wow. home game closest to Christmas in the last 15 years. What an incredible, incredible stat. That's All right. Amazing. Let's, um, let's tick through a few more here. Um, any announcer, I, I, any announcer musings? I have one, but I'll let you drop in. I know, uh, you know, Dan, I know you're tight with Tariko, who I thought had a, had a nice game. Do you have any on this one? Uh, you know, I thought Tariko was fantastic. The thing to me that, that, I love about Mike is of all of the prominent announcers out there, I think he's the one that the fewest people dislike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You might not have him on the list as your number one. He's probably, you know, in everybody's top five or 10 or whatever, but I don't think anybody out there identifies Mike Tirico as the guy they don't like. And all of the other announcers have, people that feel that way about them. So it could be Joe Buck is whatever. A lot of people, for some reason, don't like Joe Buck. Jim Nance is too schmaltzy, whatever it might be. Nobody really dislikes Tariko. He's just so solid at everything that he does, and he was from his first day on campus as a freshman at Syracuse. So I thought he was great. I do wonder a little bit after rewatching this game, was John Gruden really good? I don't. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, you know, so hardcore X's and O's. Yeah. We thought of him as like a big personality, but I think it was because of the quarterback school, quarterback mm-hmm. camp, whatever that was called on ESPN all those years. And he was tremendous on that. But when he was calling games, it was so dry, you know, spider to Y banana <laughs> stuff. I don't think he was that good. He was okay, but I, I don't think he was great. So it's funny you said that because I wrote when when uh, when John Gruden first started doing games, there were people who said he's the next John Madden, right? And there's obviously been a surge in the last year of John Madden interest because he passed away at the end of last year. And I wrote down Gruden is not Madden because John Madden, first and foremost, was an entertainer. He could do all the X's and O's stuff. Uh, he could talk high-level football, but he would dumb it down for you. With John Gruden, there's – He's not bad, and he certainly makes some salient points in terms of X's and O's, but there's nothing remotely entertaining about him to the level that would make you even think about putting him in the same conversation with a guy who's regarded as the best of all time because of how entertaining that guy was. I I wrote down a couple things about Gruden. Uh, One, he was totally flabbergasted by the locals criticism of Ray Malaluga. And it's like, have you, have you watched, <laughs> have you watched the tape? The other thing was he calls Terrence Newman, Anthony Newman twice. And I'm twice. like, why? So I look up Anthony Newman. He played safety for the Raiders and Gruden for two seasons. So you kind of understand where he would maybe mess that up at least once. I don't know the second time he, someone should have gotten his ear. No second the, time. Someone was definitely they, they did, in his ear. Cause he, cause he said fired it, off Terrence right after. Right that. after. I was like, Terrence, <laughs> but the, with, with Chirico and 
and I love him too. And I know Dan, you're good friends with him, but I, I'm, I was shocked that this didn't go viral because after Andy throws the touchdown pass to Jermaine Gresham, Trico calls him the red rocket and the red Ooh. rocket is totally different from the oh. red rifle. And I, <laughs> I Googled, uh, there was, uh, there were no tweets or no, it just went over everybody's head. And I, that thankful that I just made me chuckle when he said the red rocket. I have one uh, thing that I want to point out about here that I actually think is an interesting jumping off point to something else. And it is at some point, Mike Tirico points out that some inside the Bengals building thought Jermaine Gresham should have pushed through a toe injury <laughs> recently. We know who that is because it was only a couple of weeks later that the incident between Lap and Gresham mm -hmm. on air after the Indianapolis playoff game went down where it was a, there was a lot of back and forth between the two of them about basically, I mean, Lap was very vocal about the fact that he thought Jermaine should have been playing through some of the injuries that he wouldn't. Lap, not the only one, obviously, in the building that felt that way, but I mean, that ended up being a very public element of the, that Indianapolis game and it kind of gets again a night of foreshadowing gets foreshadowed a little bit here as Tariko points out this is bubbling under the surface here obviously Bengals fans had plenty of frustration with Gresham I would point out this is one of the most Gresham games ever by the way totally <laughs> lackadaisical almost fumble that almost kills him shows off great athleticism but you know the only thing was missing was a false start like, you know, you just that's really the only thing you were missing out of Gresham in this game where you see the potential, but it's just so all over the place and getting criticized for not play, not playing through pain. It was like this is this is prime Gresham who would be let go after the season as they'd kind of fully move on to Eifert. It, it was oh. one of his best games in terms of targets and catches. Nine catches, the second most he ever had in a game in his career. Ten targets was the second most he ever had. But it was only 62 yards. But you're right. He had the touchdown. And then he had he quit on the block that led to the forced fumble of Jeremy Hill. Mm -hmm. He kind of gave up on Von Miller and didn't finish that block. And then Miller comes in and just rips the ball away from Jeremy Hill. So that's a great, a great point that it was that you saw so much of the promise, but yet so much of the unfulfilled effort and just results. I will say this about Jermaine Gresham. UC played Oklahoma. In Brian Kelly's second year as the head coach, <clears throat> I was doing minor league baseball at the time. So uh, I flew into Norman, I think the morning of the game, I get to the stadium, I walk onto the field. I think I've got to try to find Brian Kelly for a pregame show interview or something like that. To this day, seeing Jermaine Gresham on the field that day in Oklahoma is the most impressive looking mm -hmm. college football player mm -hmm. I have ever seen in my life. I eyeballed him from a few feet away on that field that day and said, this guy is going to be the greatest tight end. <laughs> I was wrong. But, uh, man, did he look impressive in an Oklahoma uniform on the field that day. One thing I love, we were talking about Gino not talking to us earlier about Jermaine, is that he also – would not talk to us for a long period of time. And then at one point agreed to, I don't remember the circumstance behind it, but turns out he, okay, go ahead, Jay, then fill well, in the details of that part. It was, there was the threat of him being fined for not talking. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Joe Reedy go kept uh, threatening that. It's threatening that. So he, Marvin convinced Jermaine to come out and talk to us. 
and he does, and he basically starts and says, who hears from Cincy Jungle? And we're like, that's not any of us. You read a blog, and that's why you haven't been talking to us. And he went, he was so nice. And then after that, he would say, it's nothing personal. I think you guys are really nice. I just don't want to talk to you, any of you. you know. Like, it, And I always appreciated the honesty of that. It's like, I, no, I, I just don't want to do it. It's totally fine. You guys see, it's nothing personal at all. You know, I was like, okay. But it was all because he read something on a blog and thought that that was, uh, we were taking shots at him, whatever. Not that we probably hadn't or whatever, but... Uh, it was a, a, a hilarious circumstance there. Uh, I want to move. I want to move on. Uh, let's see. Um, current connection. Jay, are, do, are you? You have a crazy current connection. Correct. Current connection to the current team or current era. Yes. So it was the one you guys mentioned before. Vance Joseph. Dan said he went on to be a, a NFL head coach. It was with the Broncos. That's where he became the head coach. Um, so that was that was one. But the the more obscure one you challenged us to find the most obscure connection so broncos oats assistant offensive line coach james craig later becomes lsu's offensive line coach in 2018 tasked with protecting one joe burrow for two seasons james craig drop hmm. wow there we go that is obscure I, I was all excited to tell you that Vinny ray one of my favorite Bengals of all time is now current Bengals team chaplain who's back people that didn't know that we see Vinny around all the time he yeah. has a big play in this game was anybody a better fourth linebacker than no. Vinny Ray, like no. the most solid or liable. I remember doing a story on him, uh, and Darren Simmons said, if you had 53 Vinny Rays, you would win the Super Bowl. Like <laughs> this dude just always does exactly what you want. He sits in front of the meetings. He takes all the notes. He goes exactly where he's supposed to go. He's the perfect back of the room guy, great team guy, special teams Whenever someone was hurt at linebacker, Vinny would come in and he'd play great and he'd be like, you didn't even notice that Tez had gotten suspended or whatever. So shout out Vinny Ray, who who was a, a great underrated player from this run. Brian Callahan would have been on the Denver staff at this point, correct? correct? Yeah. Correct. Uh, the other thing I noticed, because I watched these games almost back-to-back, this is not a great current connection, but I watched the uh, AFC Championship game was on the NFL Network on Sunday afternoon, and it was miserable out, so I rewatched it. Um. For not the first time. Uh, and then I, I watched this game uh, afterward. Bill Vinovich is the referee in both. Yes. <laughs> I did not know that until I'm watching. And I'm like, wait a minute. I, I just saw and looks almost exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Um, Rico, of course, is my connection of, on a personal level being his college buddy. But to me, it, it's really cool. I'm very proud of this. There have been seven primary play-by-play announcers in Monday Night Football history. Joe Buck will become the eighth this year. But as a college student at Syracuse in the mid-80s, two of the previous seven Mike Tirico and Sean McDonough were my college pals. So you're Man. you're hanging around and drinking beers, watching sporting events with two guys who eventually become two of the first seven announcers in Monday Night Football history, which is really cool. Cuse no in the house. No doubt. <laughs> uh, Shout out hey, to the- J- J- John yeah. Gruden went to Dayton. So <laughs> yeah, there yeah. it is. Peter King went to OU. That's I don't, I mean, we got we got that. Uh let's go. All right, I'm going to challenge you guys to say what you think. I've got a list here, in my opinion. I've ranked the biggest home wins at PBS pre-Burrow. So essentially Marvin Lewis era home wins. I have 
this, I actually ended up putting this two. I, I, I had to go just the enormity of winning back the fan base of Kansas City 2003 when Kansas City was undefeated, I think was impactful in setting up that era. Um, and so that that one I have narrowly, but it was close. I wasn't sure because this one did more like in the moment. It clinched the playoffs. I mean, they might not have made it. It could. There's so much that could have come of not doing this. Um, and it helped with killing the primetime narrative a little bit, even though they didn't totally shake it. Um, but it helped. And so I, I have this too. I have Seattle in 2015. I that. The confidence they gained from that win in 15, I thought, fueled that entire season. And even though that ended, as we've referenced it a number of times here, the way it did, um, there was still a lot of special moments along the way in that season that I think were relying on that. And then another Denver Monday yes. night football game from 2004 yeah. uh, when it was sort of, that was really the beginning of Carson, Chad, Chad beating Champ Bailey over mm-hmm. the top. It was their first game back on Monday night football after not being on it for whatever, I think it was 12, 14 years, whatever it was. And, and so those, those are my top ones that I have. Are you, am I leaving any of any that stand out to you beyond those four? You know, when they beat the Patriots in 2013, which was the year in which they went undefeated at Paul Brown State, that's a really big deal. I mean, you know, that was that was a win that I think from a fan perspective made you feel like, all right, this team has this team is drastically better than the previous two. They won it with defense. Brady had thrown a touchdown in 50 straight games. And, you know, yeah, there was a monsoon, but that was late in the game. They completely held them in check, completely held them in check. And it set the stage that 13 team. You know, we talked about some of the crazy games at PBS. They they blew everybody out or they won in the most insane ways. And that, again, was kind of a hallmark of that era. But it, that, that game, it was early-ish in the season, uh, early October, maybe late September. That was a really, really big deal. And so, you know, I would say that in, in, in that same year, they beat the Packers in a game that they did everything they could to lose, turn it over four straight times at one point and, and still figured out a way to win. But just what it meant to beat Brady and the Patriots and stop that streak and do it with defense. That was, I mean, I remember that being a really, really significant moment that made you feel like, God, that 13 team is going to be better than the previous two before it. That Packers game, by the way, should be known as the ball is out. <laughs> <laughs> the official, uh, nickname for that game. The only other game that I would add to that list would be Steelers week three, 2009. So that was the year that uh, they had the early season Andre Caldwell miracles. Hmm. That was the first of them, became a playoff team. Um, that would be the other one that I would put on the list. There's just yeah, not as many that. as you think. Brian Leonard jumping over dudes. They were getting yeah. manhandled in the first half, and I think they were only down by like a field goal or something and still figured out a way to to win. Yeah. The- one that kind of gets overlooked was another Monday night game. It was uh, it was 2013. It was the week before that Packers game. Um, and it, it it just stands out because it it they the prime time thing was in play already. The the Pittsburgh Steelers jinx was mm. in in its form, and it was a 20 to 10 win. Yeah, it was week two, so I think that kind of gets lost in the shuffle, but. Um, I remember that being a big win to to beat the Steelers and do it in prime time, and they really handled them pretty well. And Geo with both touchdowns in that game. The week before, um, 
two weeks before this game, they play Pittsburgh as well, and they get they actually show highlights from that during this game, <laughs> and they get blown out. I remember because we only remember how we screwed up. I, I remember writing <laughs> about how this is the where the Bengals are finally going to turn it around against Pittsburgh and start to change this narrative. And they then they lost. I think we when did it end up at eleven or twelve in a row that they lost mm-hmm. after you know once you once you started getting past these this run where from sixteen seventeen eighteen uh, it, it it went it went terribly. Jay. Um, before we do our lasting takeaway, do you want to read our leads from this game? We we and, and see how just keep it keep it brief. Yeah, it's just three paragraphs for each one, so okay, I, I won't good. say who's is who's. You guys can pick who you like better. <laughs> no, uh, don't, do <laughs> don't do that. No, fine, go ahead. Okay, here's the first one. Uh, the primetime problems that have plagued the Bengals in the past were present again Monday night against the Broncos, but this time so was an impressive resolve and spectacular special teams, and rarest of all a collection of four Peyton Manning interceptions. Drake Kirkpatrick grabbed Manning's third interception of the game and returned at 30 yards for the game-clinching score with 2.41 remaining and a 37-28 Cincinnati victory before an electrified crowd of 66,107, the third largest ever in Paul Brown Stadium history. That was good. The next one. The Bengals have their breakthrough moment and their breakthrough win. And now they are headed back to the playoffs for the fourth consecutive year with the primetime failure stereotype faded in the rearview mirror. It disappeared into the arms of Dre Kirkpatrick. Twice. The Bengals' former first-round pick stepped in front of a Peyton Manning pass into the flat late in the fourth quarter, picked it off, and returned at 30 yards for the game-clinching pick six and a 37-28 victory on a wild night at Paul Brown Stadium. Well, I, I mm. definitely remember that now. As all the words that I use all the time in it. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's, that's funny. Both good. I, uh, uh, you guys, you guys enjoy when you have me on, you guys enjoy reading my tweets. I don't know how to go back and find tweets from a specific day, mm-hmm. but uh, had we been doing this feature, I would imagine that I would have, you guys would be asking me about tweets regarding Andy Dalton. Uh, Andy Dalton throwing short of the stick on third and six, Andy Dalton throwing a shovel pass, Marvin calling a timeout on defense after a kickoff, um, Marvin punting on fourth and two from his own 48. I'm, I'm sure I did tweet about those things. Um, but had we been doing that then that is what you guys would be asking me about. I love it. Oh, 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 Andy almost getting AJ killed. I I forgot about that one. Uh, I'm just I'm going back through my notes. How, Robert Gathers, remember that? Oh yeah, <laughs> they, like they had him in this rover position at the age of 49. Like I was just I remember thinking like this is a, this is just this is unbelievable. Uh, let's go here. Let's wrap it up. Um, most lasting moments. So I mean, you know, I think you even kind of mentioned it a little earlier, Mo. I mean, when we think back on this game now, when we think back on this game. Uh, you know, in ten years, what what for you guys is is most lasting moment? Uh, Dan, I'll let you uh, start it off. Easy, the Dre pick six. I don't yeah. think it's close. Is there a more famous pick six in Bengals history? There have been plenty <laughs> of big ones, uh, but I don't know that one stands out more than that. The fact that it was prime time, Peyton Manning, rainy night. Dre Kirkpatrick being the hero. <laughs> I think that's the lasting memory from this game, which is saying something considering that Jeremy Hall had an 85 yard touchdown run that was, you know, almost beast quake like. Uh, but the Dre Kirkpatrick pick six to me is the obvious lasting memory from this game. 
Yeah, you know, again, uh, decades from now, if you reference the Drake or Patrick game, this is what people are going to bring up. So uh, I think it's it's hard to argue against that. I think this is this is Dre's game and always will be. You know, he had a near pick six against the Broncos. It's almost as memorable when he ran out of gas on the hundred yarder. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that one that, that for me too. And and Mo mentioned he said he kind of forgot about the rain. I I remember it raining. I don't remember it raining that hard. When you watch it on the broadcast, their jerseys are absolutely soaked. And um, I I didn't. I, I just thought it was kind of a misty, spitty kind of thing, kind of like the the meltdown at Paul Brown was. But this was. This was closer to that Patriots game, just an absolute deluge in the second half, mostly the fourth quarter. Yeah, no doubt. The Drake or Patrick game, the Drake or Patrick mm-hmm. moment, and that picture of him in the rain with his arms out uh, was is is one that will certainly uh, live on. And I hope, you know, and I, I think something that's going to be cool as the Ring of Honor evolves and as the Bengals bringing back past players evolves is it's going to be really fun to see this era come back. Uh, mm-hmm. and and be respected for what they were because I do think as we talked about in the open they're so much defined by their failures they were so much thought of through the lens of the playoff games but yet in this five-year stretch they were one of the premier consistent winning teams in the NFL that won a crap load of games it was the winningest five-year run in Bengals history and and I don't know that it ever, in the moment, it was hard to give them that respect because it was uh, just it, this. The regular seasons barely mattered at that point. It was just a matter of getting to January and see if they'll lose the game. And so, I think as we start to to look like this and talking about these moments and these players and these games back as they become back and more people do that, I think they'll start to get more respect that they deserved. And people talk more about wit and about Gino, and about Leon Hall, for God's sakes, who I just think is one of the most (laughs) under-respected players in in Bengals history, and and guys like that from this era that really deserve it, Um, and and I hope that maybe this is the beginning of some of that as part of another part of the Burrow effect. Burrow lets us (laughs) move on and start talking about the past a little bit differently now, doesn't he? No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I I thought of this often watching – the game like this was an immensely fun time to go to Bengals games. This was an immensely fun time to be engaged as a fan. I also thought about what it's, what it was like hosting a daily radio show. And you mentioned all that matters is the postseason. It 14 and 15. It got to be really, really hard to engage people on the day to day and, and the week to week comings and goings of this team, because what they were doing this coming Sunday or what they had done the previous Sunday just didn't seem to matter to people. All they cared about was what's the result going to be the first Sunday in January? What's the result going to be when we play in the playoffs? And that to me was really frustrating because of games like this um, that were, I mean, you know, eight years later, there's so much to talk about eight years ago. There was obviously a lot to talk about and it just didn't seem to matter to a lot of people. And so, as a fan, this was an immensely fun time. The The outcomes at the end of the year were not fun, but in terms of engaging people and getting people to care, it was a real challenge. And, and I hate that games like this in real time and seasons like this in real time were viewed solely through the lens of what's it going to mean in January? That strikes me as a miserable way to consume sports. Um, and, and I, I hate that now people might view this differently because well the team is good and competing for championships and so now it's easier to look back at a game like this and talk about how fun it was you should have done that as it was unfolding 
What you're saying is undoubtedly true. But as I watched that game, one of the things that stood out the most to me was how great Paul Brown Stadium looked that night. Mm -hmm. How noisy (laughs) it sounded during that game. I think my memory of that time was that the stadium maybe wasn't rocking because we all were had this anticipation of, well, it doesn't really matter until they get to the playoffs. That night, it certainly didn't feel that way. Cincinnati was into it. The stadium was rocking. It looked great on TV. So uh, at least on game day, people were bringing it. Mm-hmm. It looked familiar for those of us that just experienced this past season, <laughs> yeah. uh, because that's <laughs> the way that it obviously felt last the, this past year and certainly in the home game that they played uh, against the Raiders too. You know, and it's something about, I don't know what it is like, there, there's something about the impromptu who day that happens in those moments as the team is celebrating on the field and you hear it echoing out of the stadium that is like it's it's the signature feeling of a big moment you know that just seems to happen and when it happens organically and not prompted by the video board is like that's the first thing I thought when I heard that at the end of the game I was like well, that's I don't remember that happening a lot back in those days, but that's exactly what it is. The sounds that we heard during the run last year uh, with Burrow. Uh, Guys, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. This was fun. I really appreciate you joining us, and it's good to look back. Mo, you say we got to do this more often, just putting more work onto our plate. This is like after the two-on-two series where Jay's like, I can't wait for us to do it again next year. Like It wasn't incredibly (laughs) hard to get all those people lined up. Yeah, let's let's just do it again. Yeah, I mean, it, it gives me a chance to watch old games, which I like. We always pick a victory, which is good. And, uh, you know, it, maybe uh, an old I, draft. Could we do an old draft? No, that yeah. would be fun. Yeah, might, maybe that, that would be, direction that would be fun. next time. Well, a good one, not a bad one. Uh, all right. Well, uh, thanks, guys. Appreciate your time and, and for doing this. And uh, we will see you at training camp right around the corner.